Well, whether or not this strikes you as good or bad news, uh, summer is coming to a close. Um, that means, of course, uh, the time to sneak in your vacation is coming to an end. Uh, the road trips are coming to an end. And you know what that means, of course. That, that means, you know, uh, that's, that's season with the end of the vacations, the end of the road trips, the, you know, those opportunities to, to see new places and to meet new and exciting people, some of whom are parked on the roadside with radar guns uh, aimed at you while you're taking those, those road trips. And you know how that, that plays out, right? I mean, you're, you're sailing on along, maybe a little fast, but sailing on along, you crest that hill, you look over, you round that bend, and you look over, and there he or she sits uh, with, in that car, ready to go, ready to pounce, if you will. Or may, maybe you're driving along, just kind of, you know, a little too absorbed in what you're listening to or who you're talking to, and whoop, you look in that rearview mirror, and you see those flashing lights, and you think to yourself, what? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? Oh, thank you. I am so glad that the civil authorities are in place to protect me from my own foolishness and waywardness. I praise you, Lord, and I can't wait to talk to this person, this representative of the civil authorities that you have put in place over us. Right. No, it's not, oh, thank you. It's, oh, mm, no. Why is that? Why is that our visceral reaction? Down deep, what's going on there is really this. What's been exposed in that moment is this. We have an authority problem. Very, I'm very serious about that. That's what, in that moment, that's what's been cracked open and exposed in our own heart of hearts. It's it's actually much worse than it's far it's more more it's far it's far deeper than the issue the the struggle the problem it is is far worse than just resentment of this figure representing the the civil authorities. We resent the one who put them over us, God Himself. That's our ultimate authority problem, yielding to him. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're just looking really at, well, kind of, two verses. In, in a way, also, in a way, the whole Sermon on the Mount, but in a way, just two verses uh, at the very end of chapter 7. Uh, Matthew, that is uh, the first of the four Gospels that we have, the first book of the New Testament, uh, Matthew, then Mark, Luke, and John. We're looking at verses 28 and 29. That's what I want to read here to start, Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29. Hear now God's word. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You pray with me. Lord, we ask that you would help us to hear. Um, put us there on that hillside that day and help us to hear. Uh, you are speaking through your word, your written word, here in the Gospel of Matthew, as surely 
as you were speaking that day. Through the work of your Holy Spirit, through your Holy Word. And we ask that you would speak to our own spirits. All of us. Amen. So here's the context of what's uh, going on here. Um, of chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. It is the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry. Uh, Matthew sums that up for us in Matthew 4, verse 29, uh, where he, excuse me, verse 23, where he says, And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So Jesus' popularity is growing. The crowds are gathering, and finally there comes a point where he goes up on this hillside on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee in an area that still today is basically this beautiful natural amphitheater, most likely where this took place. And then we read in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, now, it's, you know, mountain for that area anyway, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then we have recorded for us, chapters 5, 6, and 7, what we know today as the Sermon on the Mount. And the message of that sermon is basically what it means, what it looks like to follow him, what it looks like to be his disciple, what it looks like to live as a member, as a citizen uh, of, of the kingdom. Now, here's the question. How did the people there that day respond? That's really worth thinking about. And I want to delve into that together here in a few minutes. Okay, so it's the, the Summer Olympic Games. Uh, no doubt, no few of us are, are watching that. And if you've paid any attention to that, you know that there have been no few surprises. Uh, in some cases, some, th some th results have turned out just the way people thought in terms of who lost, who won. But there have been some surprises, like, you know, the women's national soccer team is out pretty early. And that was a surprise to a lot of people. Uh, and, and others, individual events, you know, some people have surged forward, men and women, in all kinds of different events from all, many nations in some beautiful ways, great backstories and all of this. But he, here's the theme, though. With, with all of these success stories, and probably really with most of the athletes who are there, uh, here's how this, this goes. Um, no matter the event, no matter the sport, no matter the nationality, Here's the undercurring theme you can hear and know is pretty well the case with every one of these people that's there. They have given themselves to this sport. They had to. That's why they're there, competing at that level. They have given themselves to that sport. They have um, determined, made the decision at some point to follow the lead of their coach and or coaches, the staff that is, that is around them. Uh, they have sacrificed so much uh, they have uh, in, entrusted themselves to this process with great hopes, putting aside all other goals and aspirations. You could call this a form of yielding and submission. Now, Jesus is not speaking here as a coach in the context of competition, but there's a parallel here in the sense of how he is speaking. He is speaking with a sweeping Authority. Just an absolute, I mean, I can't come up with enough adjectives. I'll just say sweeping. A sweeping authority. Our response then must be then of submission. To hear him. To heed him. To yield to him. 
to submit to him. He speaks with the utmost sweeping authority, more so than anyone we have ever heard. Oh, our response can only then be of, of yielding and submission to him. I, I want to unpack that in two ways, and you can see that here in, in your outline, this insert here. I want to look at first the scope of his authority. Just how sweeping is this? And what are the people hearing him? How are they hearing him? And then how did they respond? I alluded to that a second ago. How did they respond? And that then takes us to this, the, the problem with astonishment. That's how their response is described. We need to talk about the problem with their response. So first, the scope of his authority, or put another way, why, what's the reason for the people's response as they heard what they heard? So again, verses 28 and 29 of Matthew 7. And when Jesus finished these sayings, you know, chapters 5 through 7, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, I just as a quick caveat, a disclaimer, I'm borrowing here in terms of the outline at least, not so much everything in it, but in the outline, these uh, seven points here uh, from John Stott's commentary can improve on what he, the way he uh, broke this down, but you know, I'm kind of using that as a springboard, just so, so you know, in case you're a Stott fan and you're wondering, where did he get that? Well, Schwartz got it from Stott. It wasn't reversed, I can assure you of that. So, first thing being, Jesus speaks... He presents himself as the teacher. Not just a teacher among many, but the teacher par excellence. As it says here, he, he speaks as unlike the scribes. The scribes, the teachers, um, the, the folks that these folks are accustomed to listening to, understandably clung to their commentaries. Everything that they said was backed up by citing their sources. They claimed no authority in and of themselves. They stood on the shoulders of those who preceded them, not Jesus. Jesus speaks on the basis of his own authority. And completely so. In fact, it's not, he, doesn't, he doesn't just speak unlike the scribes. He speaks unlike the prophets of old. If you go back and read the Old Testament prophets, whether it's Isaiah or Micah or, or Zephaniah or whoever it is, is, you see time and again they use this phraseology, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Jesus never says that. Twelve times, just in the Sermon on the Mount, he uses the first person singular, I. I say to you. I say to you. I say to you. It's a completely different kind of teacher, speaking with a completely different kind of authority, and it rocks his hearer's world. He speaks also as the Christ, as one who is not just born for a mission, but came into this world. It's a different phraseology. You get that? Uh, it's not just born, but came. Came to do something, to fulfill a mission. That mission is described. I'm going to be reading from a few quotes here uh, in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, five, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Here's the first. F chapter 5, verse 17, the mission is described, at least partially here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He came to fulfill all of the Old Testament prophecies. He came to satisfy all that the ceremonies and um, sacrifices pointed to. He came as the fulfillment. He really is, in essence, is saying, I am really what all the major events of your heritage and history and all the major figures of your heritage and history were all about preparing the way, pointing the way for me. Oh my gosh, can you imagine anyone saying that? Right? 
And that's exactly what he is saying here. I come as the teacher, the Christ, the Lord. Now, um, th- that word Lord, kurios, in, in, in the Greek, could be used in Jesus' day in one of two ways, either as an express, expression of sort of courtesy, sort of like we would say sir, depending on the context, or it could be meant as an expression of reverence, like we, you know, Lord, capital L. How does Jesus receive that? As just the polite, courteous expression or expression of reverence and worship? He clearly takes it as the second one. He clearly does. Look with me in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. We looked at this last week. He, he pushes back. He's, he's opposing something. But what is he opposing? Is he actually opposing being referred to as Lord? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He accepts the title and its fullest significance of reverence and worship. What he warns against is using it presumptively without any heart behind it, without any meaning behind it, without any life behind it. So he speaks as the teacher, the Christ, the Lord, the Savior. This is somewhat implied. When you go back and read the Beatitudes, chapter 5, verses 3 through 12, who is it that is implied is bestowing all those blessings? It's Jesus. And then the next thing he says after the Beatitudes in verses 13 through 16. Let's read that. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now think with me for a moment. If you're there in the crowd, if you're one of his disciples, and you're hearing him say this, you have to ask this question. If you're a thinking person, how in the world is this motley band of people going to have a transformative impact and influence on the world as salt and light? This bunch. As they follow him. That's how. And again, that is an astonishing claim. But it's interwoven in everything that he is saying. As teacher, as Christ, as Lord, as Savior, and as the judge. There's another one that we see woven into everything that he's saying in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus speaks, what he says here is, is, it assumes as the backdrop that there one day will be a, a final reckoning, a judgment. But it's not just that. Who does he assume the judge is going to be? Him. Him. We saw that there in chapter 7, I'm not going to read it again, verses 21 through 23. And, th- and then we see... Um, in addition to all of, of, of that, um, the criterion. The criterion is whether or not 
We are in relationship with Him. Jesus of Nazareth. Again, put yourself there on the hillside there that day. You're watching Him. You're hearing Him say these things. Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, Joseph of Mary's boy, is saying, I am the judge of all mankind. And the crux is whether or not you have put your trust in me. You think maybe you're going to be astonished when you hear him say this? At the least. Finally, uh, actually there's one more, there's two more, as the Son of God. He speaks also clearly as the Son of God. He speaks, you could say the Sermon on the Mount, if it's all you have, gives you a fantastic, full doctrine of who God is. Jesus makes clear God is, is the creator of all things. That comes out as you read through 5, 6, and 7. He, he is the ruler of all things, and he is also the Father. And he gives his disciples the assurance, God is your Father. You are his children. You know, the Lord's Prayer, you can appeal to him as your Father. And he makes presses that even further as you keep reading through chapter uh, 7. But there's something interesting that comes out in how Jesus talks about that. He never, when he describes uh, the, the, the fatherhood of God regarding his followers, his disciples, he never includes himself with them in quite that way. He never says, our father, like yours and mine. He says, your father. And then on other places he says, my father. But he never says, ours, in this, you know, inclusively. Why? Because his is a unique, exclusive sonship. He is the son of God. Not adopted like we are. But begotten eternally as the son. One last thing. Jesus also speaks here, not just as the teacher, the Christ, the Lord, the Savior, the judge, the son of God, but as God himself. Especially in a Jewish context. This is really shattering. Um, chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, the final beatitude. Uh, it's really quite stunning what he is saying here, just implicitly, this phrasing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, you've got to think here just for a minute about the, you know, the, the, the significance of what he has just said. The comparison that he is drawing regarding the persecution of God's servants. He is saying, my friends, my followers, as you are being persecuted, as you're experiencing this, as you're experiencing this opposition from the world, you are going through, you are just like the prophets who are before you. And I am just like the one who sent them, because in fact, I am the one who sent them. He is equating himself to God right there. Not just making a comparison, it's an equation. I am God in the flesh. And if we don't get it there in the final beatitude, it certainly comes out at the very last warning of the sermon itself in chapter 7. We looked at this quickly Last week, uh, Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And skipping over to verse 24, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them 
will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now know what he's doing here. He is saying that the weightiness of following and heeding his words is same is the same as the weightiness and importance and significance of heeding his father's words. Why? Because he is God. Because he is God. So, the crowd's response. They hear this. They hear this, and this, this is why they are astonished. I mean, they're astonished not just with the substance of his teaching and the beauty of it and the wonder of it and the comprehensiveness of it and how it just, you know, it's... But it's not, it's not just that. It's what he's saying of himself that is equally astonish, astonishing. Excuse me. The Sermon on the Mount is oftentimes referred to charitably um, as a wonderful, beautiful system of ethics. This is Jesus as his fine, at his finest. This is Jesus before the church got a hold of him. This is Jesus before all of the, the barnacles began to encrust and coat everything and before the church messed everything up, before Paul got a hold of him and all these kinds of things. This is Jesus, this is core Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. This is where you got to begin. My friends, that is just folly. What, the, the ethics are completely intertwined with the theology. The ethics are completely enmeshed with an exalted Christology of who Jesus is. You can't separate one from the other. It has to be read and embraced as a package deal. We aren't given the latitude of picking and choosing here because of who has said it. You pull from one area who it is that's saying these things. I mean, actually, I would say honestly, if you try to take the Sermon on the Mount and pull out everything that speaks of Jesus' exalted sweeping authority, you've got nothing. You really have nothing in, in terms of even sentences to deal with. It's all one package deal. So again, speaking to how do we respond to this? How do we engage with this? What do we? Well, that then takes us to how the crowds there responded. And what I'll call the problems with astonishment. Let me read this again. Verses 28 through 29, chapter 7. And when Jesus finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, let's say... So it's astonishment. Different translations can put it different ways. I mean, the word is getting at amazement, at um, being uh, maybe admiration, uh, but maybe a little bit more, a little bit stronger. They're, they're dumbfounded. They're astonished. They're not just admiring. They're astonished. They're dumbfounded. They're stunned. They're unprepared. They've never heard anyone speak this way. And as I said a moment ago, they're responding to the content of what he is saying and the manner in which he is saying it, because, of course, what he's implying about himself. And so, then reflecting on that, some likely, in fact, I would even say surely, went further. They went beyond astonishment to something deeper. As you keep reading through the Gospel of Matthew, that, that seems apparent. But sadly, that's as far as some went. Now, I say sadly... Because admiration of Jesus and his teaching 
is not the same as taking it in, embracing it, and living out of it. That's not the same thing. Astonishment is not the same as faith. That's the problem with the crowd's response, with just mere astonishment at Jesus. It is not enough. And, and there are so many today that have stopped with astonishment. They have stopped with admiring Jesus and His teaching. And I, I wonder if there are even some here this morning that that's as far as we've gone. I read earlier at the start of the service that quote from Lewis's Mere Christianity and what's referred to as the trilemma. Given the pointedness with which Jesus speaks, he could only be either a lunatic, a liar, or Lord. Now, that said, some have wisely noted in the years since Lewis said what he did that there's another L you could throw out there that needs to be dealt with, and that is, well, what if he was legend? I mean, what if this is all just made up? Well, okay. I will tell you, though, that the people who heard him there that day aren't dealing with that problem. I mean, there he is in front of him saying what he's saying. And I would press really hard on this to the degree that we take seriously the historical reliability of the Gospels. We won't have that issue either. Because indeed they are historically reliable. And we can talk about that later if you want to. So that then takes us back to the trilemma. Who is he? Given what he said, he's one of these things. Lunatic, liar, Lord. Who is he? Who is he? The Sermon on the Mount presses a decision before us here. Who is he? There is no parallel among all the world religions with what we see here, the way Jesus is speaking. I'm going to read to you from an essay Lewis wrote back in 1950. He says something to uh, this very effect regarding the, there's just no parallel in, in other places, other world religions. If you had gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahma? He would have said, my son, you are still in the veil of illusion. If you had gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus? He would have laughed at you. If you had gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah? He would have first rent his clothes and cut your head off. If you had asked Confucius, are you heaven? I think he would have probably replied, remarks which are not in accordance with nature are in bad taste. And he goes on from there. The idea of a great moral teacher saying what Christ said is out of the question. There is no parallel here among the world religions, the founder of which saying, speaking in this way. So who is he? We are not given the freedom of a halfway house in which to settle here. Well, you know, I'm just going to let this be ambiguous. I'm going to sit on a fence. Somewhere between liar, lunatic, and lord. A tri-fence. I don't know. Three yards. We're not given the freedom to do that. Who is he? He speaks with a sweeping authority that demands a response from us of nothing short of full submission. Let me tell you that end with this, the story of the fly and the elephant. Um, so you have this young fly, 
and said fly um, Freddy. Sorry, Fred's Fred here? Fred's down the hall? He's back there? Okay, Fred. Freddy the fly. Freddy the fly is a young fly, and one day, don't take this personally, Fred, it's just what flies do, he's flitting about from dead bodies to dung heaps. It's what flies do. And one day, he looks across the horizon, and he sees this great gray lumbering beast that has legs like trees and a nose like a snake and ears like giant leaves. Now, we know this is an elephant. But you see, Freddy's a young fly, and he's never seen anything like this before. So he decides that he needs to see what he can make of this. Now, there's two ways to take that clause. What he can make of this. One would be just a humble stance, a curious stance, um, and exploring like a student wanting to learn, grow in your knowledge. I want to see what I can make of this thing. It's great. Thing. But another, it's a different way of trying to see what I can make of this, and that would be somewhat, not curious, but imperious. Not humble, but arrogant. Not as a student, but a judge. You know, I see myself as, though I'm a fly, greater than this big lumbering beast. And looking down from my exalted, self-exalted self, I'm going to see what I can make of this. I stole that, basically, from C.S. Lewis, the essay that I read earlier, an essay that's called, What Do We Make of Jesus? And what Lewis goes on to point out in that essay is this. Given who Jesus is, we should not be going about wondering, thinking, pondering what we can make of Jesus. Given who he is, we should be far more concerned with what he makes of us. He is due our submission, complete and total in every arena to the utter depths, given who he is, asking ourselves all the time, how ought I to live? But let me couple that with this. Not just total submission, but glad. Again, because of who he is. And because of what he's done. So not just asking how ought I to live, but my goodness, because of who he is and what he has done. This is how I want to live. For him. Following him. Because of his death and his resurrection. Because of the cross and the empty tomb. Because he's paid it all and in full and there's nothing left to be done. And because having made me one with himself, I have new life and new hope every day forever. I want to give myself to him. I want to yield the, the whole of myself, all of myself, to him. You think of the, you know, the, the scope, again, you know, the letters A through G here, who he is as teacher, as Christ, as Lord, as Savior, as judge, as Son of God, as God himself. Oh my goodness. The fullness, the richness of all that, of that. What sort of submission is he due from us? Yes, total, yes. And glad, whole-lifed, and wholehearted. Let's pray together. Lord, your authority 
is indeed clear in how you taught. Just here in the Sermon on the Mount, of course we know it comes out again and again in everything you did and said, but even just here, you are unlike anyone we've ever heard from. Anyone else who spoke in these ways would rightfully be called a lunatic. Anyone else who spoke in these ways would rightfully be called, if not that, a liar. And you are neither. Oh my goodness. You are so much, so far removed from either one of those. You are Lord. We ask that you'd help us then to hear you as we should. Perhaps a starting with astonishment, perhaps. But moving beyond that, to wonder and adoration, with humble and glad submission, and trusting all of ourselves and our, 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 our today and our tomorrow and our forever to You. And Lord, we ask that You would keep this in front of us even this week, even this afternoon, this evening, and tomorrow. Wherever it is we're going, Whatever it is that is in front of us, and whom, with whomever we are speaking and engaging with, please, please, keep these things in front of us. Help us to remember whose we are, how you speak, who you are, what you've done, and what it means to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen. We are continuing uh, in... This service, worship service, and the giving now of our tithes and offerings. So if I may ask our ushers to help us out. Uh, they're going to be moving in position, I guess you could say, for that. And as they're doing...